two of our discussion on children's welfare and child-centric development. Before you jump into this episode, I suggest listening to part one, where we introduce the topic and set up our conversation. After that, you can easily jump into today's discussion about how globalization has changed the experience of childhood and the importance of promoting children's rights. Enjoy! Talking about edtech gets me thinking about how online school would be unimaginable to our parents and let alone our parents, even our elder cousins and stuff, I guess, because school is so much a physical experience. It's so much about being in that environment, being it's your first introduction to the nine to five life almost. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Schools, especially, are a site where childhood is really constructed. Yeah, and depending yeah. on the kind of schooling experience you get, that plays a big role in the kind of childhood that you do have. A hundred percent. So how do you think globalization has changed the experience of childhood? Because COVID is one of the a very, very ugly symptom of globalization. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting question as well. In many ways, it's kind of improved our understanding or improved our awareness of children's welfare, children's well-being, and social protection as very important and key factors. Right. But in other ways, it's created a very one-dimensional and slightly Eurocentric or Western westernized version of children's welfare and childhood, right. which, like we just discussed, is so context-specific in many ways and doesn't always translate well when applied. Yeah. Do you have some examples to share with us of what this standardized definition might look like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think, don't get me wrong, I do think that it's a really good thing that there's a universal set of rights that children can access, apply, and that children are entitled to. And that's one thing that globalization has played a very important role in establishing. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what, and irrespective of the contextuality of children across the world, yeah. There is a necessity for a universal set of rights. Yeah. I think on the other hand, those rights sometimes become meaningless when there's no mechanisms for children to act- actively access and apply those rights in their mm-hmm. day-to-day lives and exercise those rights in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. So in cases of conflict or in cases of children who are immigrating, refugees, their ability to access rights is very different. And yeah. I think now there's there's an increased understanding of, okay, in, in cases of crises, we need to give children another yeah. set of rights as well on top of the rights that already exist. Yeah. Kind of like if there are refugee rights, then among refugee rights, there also need to be rights of refu- refugee children. Yeah. Spending. But at the same time, a rights-based framework is essential, but it doesn't create ground change. It, it's kind of a blueprint of what should be rather yeah. than what is. Or yeah. what, what needs to be done in order to kind of bring it to that place. How do we align a rights-based framework with ground reality? Considering that we don't want to approach it from a unified global north perspective. But then if that is what we're using to create the rights, how do we apply them in everyday life? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think it comes back to taking a child-sensitive approach when looking at any developmental issue. Yeah. So... Child poverty doesn't exist in isolation to everything else that exists and other forms of poverty, mm-hmm. other forms of crises. Child poverty isn't very independent to that. More yeah. often than not, it's a result of other forms of crises and other forms of poverty. Yeah. So especially, and this is super relevant to Can You Hear Us, 
where children's poverty and women's poverty are extremely interrelated mm, and yeah. we don't have to go far to understand why mothers are often the primary caretaker of their children right, right. and biologically as well maternal health plays a big role in children's health which goes without saying but also in times of crises in times of natural disasters or conflict women are often relegated the responsibility of taking care of those children apart from the household taking care of the children protecting the children and if anything happens to the mother something happens to the children if anything happens to the children something happens to the mother it goes yeah. hand in hand mm-hmm. and those communities are women and children are vulnerable in many cases but they're also vulnerable as you know a unit together yeah so keeping a child sensitive approach when addressing any developmental issue can make some yeah i agree forward. so i was just thinking within the category of children there's obviously some children who need more protecting than others so whether that's children living in poverty children living in conflict ridden areas even the girl child versus the male child the girl child i would think needs more protection mm-hmm. but then there's also the fact that children who are the responsibility of adults who are also vulnerable mm-hmm. that plays into how much protection that child needs as well because just like children are many types parents could be many types yeah you're not always necessarily going to be taken care of by the most protected thriving adults very And true yeah if the adults that are responsible for you themselves are vulnerable i wonder Yeah, I wonder how you're supposed to navigate that. Yeah, I mean, I think child yeah. sensitivity seems to be the the correct way to go about this because mm-hmm. as a category, children are just very invisible from public discourse, right? Because it's Yeah. Children's rights are advocated by adults. So, adults speak on behalf of children. There you yeah. very rarely see children out on the streets and being even able to actively exercise their rights. Yeah. Something that's overlooked a lot is child-headed households are very very prominent in many or like very common in many parts of the world where yes children who are children but they're 16 or 17 years old so no longer you know infants kind yeah. of pr- approaching young adulthood are taking care of their siblings or their relatives yeah. who are much much younger than them sometimes 5 year olds or you know 6 year old siblings and these children legally yeah. children in all senses of the term are undertaking adult responsibilities and in those cases as well you can't force a child in that position to go to school unless no. you're also giving them the economic resources to take care of their family exactly obviously that doesn't mean that you shouldn't create mechanisms where they have the right to go to school but then they don't have the circumstances where they can exercise that right and who would take care of their siblings yeah yeah no 100% because that's actually a really good example because i was thinking of greta thunberg and yeah. how very famous speech where she just mm. i think she's basically talking about how she should be in school and for some reason she's at the un yeah <laughs> greta thunberg i think is an exception because what was very eye catching about what she did was mm-hmm. point out the fact that she's out here advocating for something that should be done by adults instead yeah. of being in school obviously drives it this huge uh, premise behind how people even look at children's welfare Any yeah. child who's out of school yeah is a child who is vulnerable in the the general eye which is also why there's such an intricate relationship between education and childhood as well and the kind of education you get really defines the kind of childhood quality of childhood that you have as well true, true. I sent you another paper it was called yeah. what happened to children who returned from the lord lord's resistance army in Uganda 
And one of the authors on that paper is Tim Allen, who is a professor at the LSC. Okay. And the paper talks about certain children who were abducted or brought into the Lord's Resistance Army. And obviously those children were brought in mostly by force. Right. Around half of the children after conflict never saw their family again. Yeah. But a big portion of them were returned through aid finance reception centers. Okay. But on the one hand, some family, some children were reunited with their families and relatives. But a, another big portion of them lived just in displacement camps. Mm-hmm. And family members rarely visited them. Even when they did visit them, there was still a huge amount of stigma associated with what happened to them during yeah. their childhood. The yeah. fact that they were in the LRA, in this group, you know, they yeah. were discriminated yeah. against by their own family. Communities didn't want the didn't want them back in. But it this I think is a good case study of understanding how what happens to children in their childhood, often mm-hmm. not by their own choice, still shapes the kind of rela- social relationships that they're able to have as adults. Yeah. In this case, a lot of these children were brought in by force. And in this case, a lot of these children were unable to go back in because it was a post-conflict situation as well. Yeah. But in many cases where children do commit pretty bad crimes and they're unable to reintegrate into society, yeah. that kind of creates an uneasy situation where you're like, okay, to what extent can you separate the actions of children from the actions of adult adults, yeah. you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I think at the core of this conversation, I, that's the idea, which is that mm-hmm. children grow into adults and we cannot be looking at adults and being like, oh my God, how did you turn out this way without looking at their childhood? Yeah. Because everything you are, everything you become is is a product of your childhood. And again, yeah. that, this is not to say that, that if you've had a tough childhood or if, if you've been a victim of certain circumstances when you were younger, that they're going to be with you your whole life, that there's no way you can escape them. But they're going to impact you regardless because of how vulnerable you are during childhood. And coming back to everything we've discussed, the reason you're supposed to be protected during your childhood is because of how vulnerable you are. There's a reason that children Mm. consent to certain things. It's not considered actual consent because it's easy. They're vulnerable. It's easy to take advantage of children. But I think our perspective on that should be less about whether the children has the capacity or the experience or the ability to do it, but rather like whether we should put them in a position where they have to or should be doing it in the first place, even if they have the capacity to. Mm -hmm. And I feel in many ways, if you are heading a household, taking care of your siblings, working, going to school, a lot of children in those positions do have more experience and understanding and probably knowledge of what's really going on in their societies than maybe maybe children who are already being protected. Yeah. The key key issue there is to look at children's welfare as not something that children it's not it's not about a lack of children's capacity mm-hmm. but a lack of the creating circumstances where society protects children from cases where they have to be put in that position yeah, yeah. i love that actually that it isn't a lack of capacity more just almost like pigeonholing some again like yeah. i mean it's not just a case of social situations obviously when we talk about childhood it's biological psychological yeah in some cases political mm. there's so many different perspectives that you can look at it from in case in the case of development and in the case of looking at childhood as a category we need to look at it mostly from a social and legal perspective what kind of circumstances do we create to protect children socially there's been cases where five-year-olds four-year-olds 
they're lost. They can survive, though. Recently, I heard a story of, like, a plane crash, but there was five children who survived, and yeah. they were in, like, the forest or the jungle for a week, and they were unharmed. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And yeah, they took yeah. care of each other, and one of them was a yeah. newborn baby. So wow. I'm not an expert on biology, so I can't say, but humans do have, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah the biological case of protection is kind of outside of our regulatory capacity but yeah. socially you can protect children from the things that they're most vulnerable to and most exposed yeah, to sure this might be like a little bit of a digression but i'm thinking mm-hmm. about how especially very recently with disney having lgbtq princesses there's this mm-hmm. thing about when should that conversation happen with children when should you tell your children about about the fact that everybody isn't straight or mm-hmm. another conversation that i'm thinking of is when do you tell adopted children that they are adopted and mm-hmm. A very common reaction to these questions has been just tell them when they're younger. Bigotry, biases, these are things children develop with age. The younger the child is, the less biases they're going to have. So yeah. the sooner you can just, the sooner you can normalize these things for them, the less likely they are to develop biases around them. Yeah, and- absolutely. The examples you just gave are interesting to look at how different different people look at what children need to be protected from differently. Some people would say that showing LGBT uh, representation is damaging to children. There is a group Mm -hmm. of, like, there's a conservative mindset on that side. But some people would say that not showing children that would just make them less tolerant, make them, you know, more bigoted. So there's there's so many different perspectives on what exactly children, child protection even looks like. What are we protecting children from? Yeah. Obviously, there's the big bad things like abuse, exploitation, trafficking. Yeah. Those are kind of a given, at least at this point, you know, yeah. not so much in the past. But now, the child labor is kind of unanimously agreed yeah. upon that it's a bad thing. Yeah. But then there's a whole discourse that video games are bad for children. Mm, yeah. But there's only some children that are even exposed to these kind of things. We're still in a place in big mm. parts of the world where the big bad evils are really big and bad, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dude, this has been a little bit of a it's been an intense conversation and there's been a lot <laughs> that we've discussed. Yeah. So there's one takeaway that you could say if someone if someone hasn't listened to anything we've said so far, if yeah, there's TLDR. one takeaway. Okay. I think my one takeaway that I would really want to advocate for when I do talk about children's welfare is yeah. when we do look at children, sometimes the words that we often use and that we also today have used a lot are vulnerability dependency yeah but rather than focusing on children as a category that's incapable we need to look at what what kind of position we are putting children in based on what capabilities they do have yeah and why we do give children the kind of protection that they do and also looking at child sensitivity as a lens that we kind of need to bring to development consistently remembering that children's welfare and children's protection is the key to long-term development and it's the key to creating sustainable and more productive developmental spaces mm-hmm. for our present and our future. Because mm-hmm. if you have if you have children's welfare today, then you have su- supported, protective, and yep. cared for adults tomorrow yep. who can then create better growth, better development, and again recreate children's welfare. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sanjana. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. Of course. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for enlightening us with uh, so much interesting information. I had so much fun. Thank you. uh, 
Thank you. Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to So We Heard. We hope you enjoyed our show. I am your host, Ragini, signing off and going to overhear some interesting conversations to bring back for you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hello to our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of So We Heard. This is your host Ragini signing off and going to overhear some interesting conversation to bring back to you. Bye bye.